0: Hello, Art Curious fans, and welcome to another episode of Curious Talk. I'm your host, Josh Dassel, of Art Curious's production partner, Kabunki, And here in studio with me is the host of Art Curious and my wife, Jennifer Dassel. Hi, Jen.
1: Hey, good morning.
0: So in our inaugural episode of Curious Talk a couple of weeks ago, we dug a little further into the first four episodes of Season 3. And so today, I want to continue you on in that direction by looking at the last four episodes of this eight-episode season, and then uh, maybe at the end of it, we can talk a bit about what to expect in season four. How does that sound?
1: Sounds perfect to me. Let's do it.
0: Before we get to any of the episodes in particular, I am curious... Haha. Uh-huh. Uh, what has been the listener response so far to our first episode of Curious Talk?
1: It's been really good, actually. I was a little bit nervous at first because these kind of interseason episodes that I'm doing right now are definitely a break from the traditional way that we've been doing these Art Curious episodes. But people have been saying that they thought it was really fun. It was a way for them to dig a little bit deeper into episodes, to hear something a little more off the cuff from me, and also a way to hear some of their own questions answered, which is really really fun. Get a little more listener participation therein.
0: I like having the opportunity just to uh, tease out some of these episodes with you because I, I know me and I'm sure the the other listeners listen to these things and go, that's so interesting. I want to know more about it. And then we, and then we talk about other things uh, throughout the episode. So I've, I've got a pile of questions. I'm sure they do too. Let's go to episode number five, which was about Turner and Constable. And I'd like to start this one with a listener question. This is a question sent by email from a listener named Andrea or Andrea who says in the Turner versus constable fight. Whose side are you on?
1: I find that a really good question, but a really hard one to answer because I don't really want to choose sides. I think there's a place for both of these artists in terms of their work and the way that we can appreciate their work. But I do find it really hard not to feel sympathetic towards Constable. Turner himself comes off as being kind of a bully, a little brash, and certainly Constable was not a saint. The whole thing about putting Turner's paintings in a bad section, and bad light in the 1831 exhibition, you know, he was doing things that were a little rude and not very kind to his rival. But at the same time, he came off just really trying to do his best. And poor Turner just really one-upped him.
0: So a little good, a little bad on both sides of that rivalry. Is that what we're saying?
1: It's pretty much like that for me for almost all of the cases of rivalries in season three. But either way, people probably will fall onto one side or the other in finding themselves similar to Michelangelo versus Raphael. Or maybe they side a little bit more with uh, Willem de Kooning as opposed to Jackson Pollock.
0: So I guess definitely let you know on uh, Twitter or Instagram or or Facebook whether they are hashtag Team Turner or hashtag Team Constable.
1: Totally. And people definitely did that right after this episode. They would say, oh, I totally side with Turner. Or no, no, I'm definitely a a constable. So yeah, we can keep that going.
0: Now, we were talking about paintings that were uh, an artist that were put head-to-head with one another back in the 1830s, like 1831, 1832. And recently, uh, within the past few years, They have been put head to head again, am I right?
1: That's right. So actually, twice this has happened in the last decade. In 2009, those two big paintings that were kind of the pinnacle of the episode, the Helvet painting by Turner and also the opening of Waterloo Bridge by Constable, those were the ones that had that big moment where Turner painted the buoy and, you know, Constable said something like um, it was like a gun had been fired. Those two works had not been seen together on view right next to each other since 1832. And the Tate in Britain actually put them together. In 2009, for the first time. And then they did something similar actually just this year with the two works that were head to head the year prior in 1831. And that was Constable's Salisbury Cathedral from the Meadows and Turner's work, which was called Caligula's Palace and Bridge. And those were put on view again for the first time since the 1830s. And it's really this opportunity for us as viewers to stand back and assess, look at the works again with this view of hindsight and be able to say, well, you know. Do these look like they compare to each other in any way? Is there a real rivalry going on? Do we need to put them together? Do we need to have this competition?
0: So if I ask you to answer that question, what do you answer?
1: I think it's difficult. Again, I do think that there's a place for each of the artists, but it is, for me, really hard not to see this picture of Helvet Sloyce paired with the opening of Waterloo Bridge. And to me, I feel like it kind of is a sad no-contest situation. I think Turner is the winner just from an art historical perspective an opportunity to kind of break the mold and constable to me just doesn't fit the bill the same way
0: now in episode six the one to follow turner and constable you talked about two artists elizabeth vj lebrun and lobby Guillard. and i know that vj lebrun not to give short shrift to to but i know that vj lebrun is an artist that you have come back to uh, at least a couple of times over the course of art curious can you talk to me about why that is
1: I think she's one of the artists that when I was first studying art history in college, finding out about her was sort of this revelation because I was taking these basic art history classes that kind of plod you through the entire history of art from cave paintings until now. And most of that is really looking at a very Western and male-centric point of view. So you start out with these cave painters who may end up actually having been women for the most part, but were always assumed to be men. And then you go into the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, and it's always looking at the big names like Michelangelo and Picasso, the same names that we're talking about now. And then I took a class where in the middle of it, all of a sudden there's this woman who pops up and ends up being in this huge position. We're not talking somebody who was just, you know, doing a great job and was professional and was just painting pictures and became famous. This was someone who became famous because she had the biggest and one of the best jobs in the land. She was the official court painter to Queen Marie Antoinette. It's you could of course paint the king and that would probably put you one step ahead, but in general this was as good as you could get. And for a woman to be in charge like that, it just blew my socks off. And I find her to be a totally fascinating story. And the fact that she, A, survived the French Revolution, and then went on to have a really solid, amazing career all over Europe after that point, I think it's really phenomenal. It's certainly
0: unexpected. In talking about Rivalries, whether it's V.J. LeBron and Lobby Guillard or whether it's Turner and Constable or any of the others. Uh, we'll get a little philosophical here. I'll throw a Nietzsche quote at you, not to uh, <laughs> not to take this down too much of a, of a philosophical road. But I think it was Nietzsche that said if an enemy did not exist, it would be necessary to invent one. What do you think of that quote?
1: I think it's a little pessimistic, but it's probably true to a degree because we need that sense of competition to spur us on. And so you can go one of two ways, I think. And that was one of the things I mentioned in the very first episode of this season, where rivalries can cause you to do better. They can cause you to say, you know, like, hey, I I need to up the bar a little bit because I need to be in step and in line with this person who I think is my rival. But it can also have that negative effect where all of a sudden you're overcome or overwrought with senses of jealousy. Um, and not able to feel like you're good enough because you're always trying to measure up against someone else.
0: Now, this this could have the effect of not just having an effect on the person, but really changing the work maybe to match or to get as good as or, or better than the person you're perceived to have a rivalry with.
1: Absolutely. I think a lot of people do that. You know, you're kind of just keeping an eye. It's, it's one of those keep your friends close, but keep your enemies closer situations. You're trying to keep a really good eye on someone so that you can test the waters and see if you can make yourself do better
0: to flop it around the other direction, I would imagine that artists and and maybe celebrities in general uh, over time have used this knowledge of there must be somebody for us to be pitted against, for us to be a better or the audience to like us, have used that to their advantage.
1: Totally. I think there's a lot about publicity stunts that can play into this, especially now, Um, because just in general, drama is what keeps you in the news. Drama is what makes you relevant. If you're putting out good work and it's solid, you know, people will be like, oh, that's good. Good job. Nice album. Good book. Whatever. But if you put out something and All of a sudden you're in some sort of like Twitter feud with somebody, you're going to be all over the place. You can look at the Kanye Taylor Swift thing, maybe even throw some Kim Kardashian in the middle and say like some of that I'm sure is a real fight going on. But some of it might just be kind of exploding it a little bit bigger just for more attention to gain more publicity. And everyone kind of wins in that case in celebrity culture.
0: So in the lebron Guillard fight, uh, which one is Taylor Swift and which one is Kanye?
1: (laughs) No comment.
0: You've really got me hooked on what we've been talking about so far. We've got two more episodes to go. Can't wait to chat about them. And we'll do that right after this break.
1: We all have photos on our phones or cameras or posted to our social media accounts. But when you get that really perfect picture and you want to turn it into something real that you can see every day, PosterBurner.com is ready for you it can turn all of your photos into amazing prints. So imagine walking into your room and seeing that perfect family photo or vacation picture on your wall. Or say that you need to get a perfect gift for your family or friends. There is nothing that's going to be as impressive and as meaningful as a custom print. Poster Burner is very easy to use, it's totally affordable, and the quality is truly top-notch. They make amazing posters, and when I say posters, I don't mean those flimsy posters that you see in stores. These are made on super thick premium photo paper, and you can get a 24 by 36 movie size poster for under $20. They also make custom canvas prints, metal prints, decals, stickers, banners, and so much more. So go to posterburner.com slash artcurious today and you'll get an additional 10% off your order. That discount applies to every type of print they offer. Again, that is posterburner.com artcurious. RX Bar is a whole food protein bar. So, what does that mean? It means that RX bars are made with real, whole ingredients. They believe in the power of transparency, and so they let the core ingredients do all of the talking for them. And they are listed on the front of every RX Bar package. So, you've probably recognized RX Bar if you've seen them on the shelf. They're the ones that have egg whites listed as protein. Dates are there for sweetness and to bind, nuts for texture, and then they're mixed with other delicious ingredients like unsweetened chocolate, real fruit, and spices like cinnamon and sea salt. They have 14 delicious flavors for adults, such as peanut butter, peanut butter chocolate, blueberry, mixed berry, and my personal favorite, coconut chocolate. But did you know that RxBar also has a kid line as well? Because parents like me, we expect the same high quality and clean label nutrition for our kids as much as we do for ourselves. Kids' bars have that same whole food ingredients as regular RX bars, but they are smaller and they come in amazing kid-friendly flavors like chocolate chip, PB&J, and peanut butter chocolate. And both adult and kids' bars are totally gluten-free, soy-free, and dairy-free, and they also have no artificial colors, artificial flavors, preservatives, or fillers. I mentioned that my favorite bar was the coconut chocolate bar for grown-ups. It tasted amazing, and it was just really nice to know exactly what was in the bar without these added fillers or preservatives or anything artificial. RxBar is offering you an exclusive pack of six adult bars and four kid bars so that the whole family is able to enjoy. So for 25% off your first order, visit rxbar.com artcurious and enter the promo code artcurious at checkout. So once again, for 25% off for your first order, visit rxbar.com artcurious and then enter the promo code artcurious, one word, at checkout.
0: Welcome back to Curious Talk. I'm in studio with Jennifer Dassel, host of Art Curious. Hello again. Now we get to move on to episode number seven. This is about Degas and Manet. Now, this was a fascinating and weird episode about friendships and rivalries and gifts gone wrong. And we had this kind of as a centerpiece, I guess, of the story. We had this painting of Manet's wife.
1: Yeah, it was a dual painting that Degas did of Manet and his wife. And Manet is kind of just like reclining and laying back in this rather weird, lazy way. And then his wife is sitting very upright and playing the piano. And we don't exactly know really what the problem was, but... It started to bother Manet fairly quickly. And the next time that Degas came over to Manet's house to visit his friend, he looked over and the painting had been sliced right down the middle of Suzanne, his wife's body. So basically from her temple on down onwards. And part of the painting was just gone.
0: So a nice gift created by Degas for his friend Manet, of Manet and his wife, uh, hands it over to them, says, here you go, uh, buddy. It's a a painting I made for you. And the next time he comes to the house, slash, half of it's gone.
1: Exactly. And that really obviously pissed Degas off. And so he eventually grabbed it back from him and had this intention for the longest time of fixing it somehow. Uh, We don't know exactly what he had in mind, but it never happened. It was never fixed.
0: okay so that begs the question. Where is it, and can I go see it?
1: <laughs> yes, you can. It actually is still in existence in its slashed state, and it's in a museum in Japan. And you'll have to forgive me if I don't get this pronunciation right. I do not speak Japanese, but I think the museum is called the Kitakyushu Museum Uh, Municipal Museum of Art. Is that how you say that?
0: Sounds about right to me. (laughs) So if we we want to see, uh, is it just half the painting or is it restored?
1: It is on view in its altered state, meaning that it was not restored. There's no way to bring it back to its original way that it looked before Manet uh, basically destroyed part of it. So it stands to show this interesting tale. Its most important and most interesting thing about it is the story of what happened to it after it was completed.
0: Now, Degas and Manet met at the Louvre. Am I right? They were they were painting?
1: Yeah, they were both at the Louvre doing the same thing that a lot of artists do, which is they were copying works by old masters.
0: And this is done by art students all over the place, uh, I, I'm sure, for learning technique and, and you know, you study the best in order to be the best, something like that.
1: Exactly. It's the same reason why you always have art students who are trying to reproduce something about a famous work. I, I remember being in uh, college and going and walking the halls of the art building, and one day there was this huge exhibition where out of nowhere there are all these student works that were plays off of famous Matisse paintings, and uh, you can tell that people were really trying to learn things about depth and color and composition just by looking and trying trying to mimic the work of one single master.
0: Isn't that also, especially maybe at the Louvre, isn't that a a really, I don't know what you would say, an effective way of creating forgers, too?
1: I think that's a tough question, but I don't think you'd want to, or I don't think there would be really a way to do so in public. And I know that we talked about in episode one, which is about whether the Mona Lisa was fake or is a fake. Um, The Louvre originally, and I'm not sure if they still do, but originally they had some guidelines set aside that said you can only create a work of art that was within this dimension because that was the only way to keep it from being recognized as a real deal. That was a way to know that it was a forgery. But a lot of people do set up shop in Museums today and draw, uh, mostly draw, not so much painting in the galleries as much anymore, although that is a possibility in some places. And that is how they learn. But I think you have to be very, very very good to be able to be anything like a forger because forgers have to be so exact not only in their technique but also in their materials you know we talked about that a little bit in the Mona Lisa episode where you're trying to use the same type of pigments the same type of wood the same type of brush even the same everything to try to recreate something that was done hundreds of years ago you have to be so precise and really frankly it's very rare that people can get it right even really good forgers there's not that many out there.
0: So what you're telling me is my chances of making a little money on copying the Mona Lisa are next to nil.
1: I'm going to say they are really zero. Doggone it. Sorry.
0: (laughs) All right. Let's get to the last episode of season four. Excited to get here. This is about Picasso and Matisse. Modern art, right? Correct. They had a rivalry, kind of like the other uh, seven episodes that we have talked about. They were able to get beyond theirs and become something more than enemies, rivals, uh, people pitted against one another. They managed to do it and do it successfully. How'd they do that?
1: I'm not totally sure what happened, what the moment was that really was able to break past that enmity and turn these enemies and rivals into friends. But my guess that it probably has something to do with mellowing out with age. Both of these artists live to be fairly old Picasso outlived Matisse by a number of years but both of them lived long enough that they were able to attain what they wanted to in art you know they both had this very disparate view of what modern art was Picasso very much wanted to break down depth and dimension and you know thinking about cubism having everything be on the same page uh, so to speak Whereas Matisse was very much looking at things in terms of depth and color, and they both really were taking art in a different direction. Eventually, however, they were able to achieve that, and then they still had these long careers in front of them. And so there seemed to be these certain points where they both sort of circled back to one another and actually sought each other out for advice on, you know, what should I do now? And what's the next big thing? And how do we move art forward after all this time? And it seems like it kind of worked out for both of them
0: sounding to me, actually, like like kind of an opposite or a counterpoint to Jackson Pollock and, and Willem de Kooning with Pollock dying early and not having that chance?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a good question. I don't know if Pollock and de Kooning would have ever come around to really be friendly toward each other because their animosity, especially on the side of Jackson Pollock towards Willem de Kooning, was pretty strong, pretty extreme. But, you know, it may have been possible if they had both lived long enough, Pollock especially, they may have gone to at least start grudgingly really accepting or or even enjoying each other's works.
0: Okay, so help me out. I've mentioned before, I am not an art historian. I am a lay person. I, I can look at art, I can sometimes appreciate art, but I don't know why I appreciate it sometimes. Picasso is one of those artists that I think a lot of people look at and go, "It's interesting, it's kind of odd. I think I like it, but I don't understand why I do or I don't like it. Can you, with all of your years of expertise, tell me, how can I learn to appreciate a Picasso?
1: (laughs) So here's the number one thing that I always tell people when it comes to art. You don't have to like it. Number one, if you don't like a Picasso, that's totally okay. You can even look at a Picasso and say, like, "Mm, it's fine, and you don't have to think it's a big deal. Mostly, I just want you to look. In terms of how to enjoy or really understand why somebody like Picasso is important, in short... Most of the time, not just with Picasso, but with all artists, it really comes down to being the first at something. In Picasso's case, he was really one of the first people to really abstractly break down dimension and space. So thinking about cubism, one of the tenets of cubism is that you are all of a sudden making it so that you can see all the angles of an object at once. So say you're painting a picture of a box. You are all of a sudden not only seeing the front of the box, but all of its sides, the bottom and the top at the same time. It sounds impossible, and it kind of is, but Picasso and George Brock and other cubists, they've tried to figure it out. They made it work. And that's one of those reasons you see all these mixed up elements and you have a hard time identifying what you're seeing but part of that is because they were trying something totally new they were experimenting and they were breaking all of the rules no one was thinking about art that same way before the cubists and that is part of the reason why they are prominent and why they were really big
0: Well, these have been fascinating episodes this season. Eight of them, by the way, if you haven't listened to all of the episodes in season three. Eight episodes about pairs of artistic rivals. I highly suggest you go and and listen to them if you haven't. And if you have, by golly, go listen to them again. They are infinitely listenable. Before we sign off for today, I want to make sure that we get to some of our listener questions. And we have some good ones. The first is from Instagram from someone whose name I love. It's at bad iPhone pics who asks, What do you think is the best city in the US to see art?
1: I think that's kind of an easy one and kind of an obvious one, at least for me. It feels almost trite to say it, but definitely New York for me is the best just because you get everything and some of the best of everything. They have not only the big, you know, the big guns like the Metropolitan Museum of Art and MoMA, but they also have amazing collections of Asian art. Shout out to my favorite museum, which is the Rubin Museum, which is all about Tibetan and South Asian, Southeast Asian art. It's fabulous. Indian art. Um, And then you get things like the Jewish Museum that has fantastic exhibitions. Basically, anything and everything you want and in good quantity and excellent quality is
0: there. The last question for today is season four. What's it going to be about?
1: Mm, it is coming. So it's going to come in October. Actually, the very first day in October is when I'm scheduling a release for it, which will all be about shock art. Now, this isn't shock art the way I think a lot of people use the term shock art, which is more of a contemporary thing, like in the 80s and 90s, when you had people like the young British artists who were actually creating very shocking works of art. But I'm looking more at shock art from an art historical perspective. So paintings or sculptures or anything like that, that was really strange or out of the ordinary and surprising and indeed shocking for their contemporary artists, or even now that have had this second life and become problematic or controversial.
0: It sounds incredibly juicy, and I cannot wait to listen.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Before we go, I just want to mention one other thing, which is that there will be one more bonus episode. Between now and October 1st, and that's coming up in a couple of weeks, it's kind of a one-off episode that I just thought would be fun to do, so listeners can definitely look out for that.
0: Any clues on what it is, or do we just have to wait?
1: No, it's just going to be a surprise. The only thing I'll tell you is that there is a slight connection to one of our most popular episodes of all time, which was number 25, the one about Donald Duck.
0: Okay, so look for season four coming your way at the beginning of October. It's all about shock art. To join other seasons about rivals and art of the World War II era and all kinds of interesting uh, potpourri grabs from the first season, this is a show that you don't want to miss. Jennifer, thank you for being here and talking to us on Curious Talk today. Thanks
1: so much for having me. This is really fun and different.
0: And we want to thank you, listeners, for tuning in to Curious Talk and for your dedication and loyalty to Art Curious. If you want more information on Art Curious or to listen to some of these past episodes that we've referenced in preparation for Season 4, how can they do that?
1: ArtcuriousPodcast.com or look it up on any way that you get your podcasts. Google Play, Spotify, Apple Music, Apple Podcasts.
0: And leave your reviews. That helps all of the listeners like yourself find this show, find Art Curious, and find some new things to listen to. We're going to call that it for now. But everybody, make sure you mark your calendars to check back with us in a couple of weeks for a new bonus episode of Art Curious. And remember, you keep listening.
1: And we'll stay curious.